Great worship, friends. Really good stuff. Um, two things I want to say before we get started together. And number one, thank you so much for your kindness to me and my family. Uh, just one little display of it is what is out there in the foyer. And there is a lot of food and special things. Someone got the memo on my favorite cereal, which is Captain Crunch peanut butter. And I've counted, there's five boxes. If there's any less, the security team is going to hunt you down and get those back to us. But thank you so much. You know, next week we'll have, we'll have a note in the bulletin that says thank you. And, um, you know, ink on a page doesn't quite do it. So uh, we really, really appreciate your generosity, your kindness. Not just to my wife and I, but to our children. And uh, thank you so much. Second thing I need to say as we get started is uh, a big welcome to my mother-in-law, Joyce, who is here today from Grand Rapids, and uh, we're, you're allowed to clap, sure. So last week we had some friends from New York that were here with us, and today is my mother-in-law, and, and I have to quote her. Um, she's been pretty excited about our family being closer to her, and, and when we've been talking to her about this ministry opportunity here, and she said, I won't believe it until I finally see you, Brian, up front and preaching. So here I am. It just goes along with the phrase, behind every successful man is a surprise mother-in-law. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's very true. Anyways. Hey, like many of you, I have a junk email folder. Probably you have one too. And I'm not sure how the software... How does it really decipher, you know, what's junk and what you want to read? I don't know all of how it does it, and every once in a while I'll look in there to see, has anything I wanted to read get snagged and caught up in that folder? And for the most part, I found it does it right. It finds the stuff I don't want, haven't requested, and it puts it there. And then uh, every once in a while I'll find one that I should read, but for the most part it gets it right. And some of the most popular junk emails that make it in there are these. Maybe you found them too. Uh, mortgage loan proposals, they're in there. Life insurance offers, I've seen those in there. The, there's the occasional how to win the war against hair loss. That's not funny. <laughs> One of my favorites is this. And I, when I saw it, I just, I just ruptured. This is great. Literally, here's the headlines. It says, the no exercise diet, which caught my eye. Here's what it says. Literally, quote, eat what you want, when you want, don't exercise, and watch the pounds melt away. In case you're wondering, that is the plan I'm on right now. <laughs> They've actually signed me as their spokesperson, I think. Uh, but I think, you know, there's a level of common sense. When we talk about this, you know, we look at a claim like that, and you think, that's ridiculous. There's no way that you get results like that without some level of sacrifice that you feel and that you experience. And, and there's a reason why we gawk at the amazing results on The Biggest Loser. 
because we see what these people go through. We see the agony and the self-sacrifice that they deal with. And, and so then we look at the results and we think, that's just fantastic. You know, um, if someone hasn't already been training for the Olympics, there's only one way they're going to go, and that's as a spectator. Because we realize these folks end up working years and years and years in advance for one special outing of events. Our armed forces, we marvel at them, and, and in fact, it would be a scary thing to imagine our military commanders not demanding the ultimate of sacrifice of these folks, and, and they do it. And these people give it. And they give sacrifice even to a point where they are willing to go to a land far away and fight on our behalf, even to the point of losing their own life. And so when we think about sacrifice, we understand that if there's to be big results, if there's to be something dynamic, it, it's often accompanied by sacrifice. And so today I want to introduce you to someone who displayed this kind of sacrifice. It's an awesome account from a man named Elisha. And if you have your copy of the scriptures or you have your, your phone or your iPod or whatever it may be, uh, turn, if you would, over to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19, and we're going to just read a few verses of Scripture, and we're going to understand the life of a man named Elisha, and he knew a thing or two about sacrifice. And he understood a thing or two about sacrificing for a purpose. Not just in general, but he knew why he was sacrificing and he put that out because he wanted something special to happen. And, and really, when we come to this 1 Kings 19 passage, this is the first time the scriptures ever talk about Elisha. So this is our introduction to him. And normally in introductions, it's a really excellent opportunity to find out what someone is made of. So 1 Kings chapter 19, I'm just going to read for you uh, three verses here. We're going to go 19 and 20 and 21 and just follow along in your copy of the scriptures i'll read it for you this morning here's the account it says so elijah went from there and found elisha son of shaphat he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair and elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. And Father, I have, I've got a theme, God, that's bigger than me. And I really believe it's at the heart of what you have for anyone who follows after you, but especially for those together that say, we're East Bay Calvary Church. And way beyond me, use your word and your spirit to touch us and draw us close to you. 
and help us to be people of sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I also wanted to say a big welcome to anyone who may be a guest here today. I joked last week, uh, we're visitors too. There's something special here at East Bay Calvary. Special enough that, um, that my wife and I would pack up everything we own and our seven kids and our two dogs and leave our unsold home and come on out here to Michigan to be with you folks. And we, we really believe this is a special place with special people and God has a very special plan right here. And we're excited about it. Amen? Yeah, I know. It's enough to give you Baptist goose pimples on your arm, isn't it? It's just amazing. Hey, let's talk about uh, Elisha for a moment. If you have your um, message guide that's in your worship folder, grab that out. And I want to give you some quick facts about Elisha. I'm going to have to move through these a little bit faster. Um, He was a teacher of God. He was a prophet to Israel's northern kingdom. And he lived somewhere 800 to 900 years before Jesus was born The prophet that served before him has a very similar name. It's Elijah. And Israel was a very divided nation. They had stopped worshiping Yahweh. In fact, if you want to look up just a few verses, and you'll see it there in verse 14 in chapter 19. Here's the words of Elijah. It's going to give you a a good context of where Israel was at this point. And notice Elijah's confession he says i have been very zealous for the lord god almighty now notice his understanding of israel he says the israelites have rejected your covenant they have torn down your altars they have put your prophets to death with the sword and i am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too what a sad commentary on a people who are god's own chosen people He's drawing to himself, and now the Bible says they don't even worship God anymore. They worship other gods, and in fact, anyone trying to teach them about God, these prophets, they're trying to put to death, and that's the commentary on the state of Israel at this point. Elisha was from an obscure town. He's described as the son of Shaphat, um, and they lived at uh, Abel Mahola, and depending upon the maps that you look at and how you figure out it is believed to be near uh, the town of tel ubi which is a lot easier to pronounce than michigan towns um, west of the river jordan and the only significance about this town is it's the birthplace of elisha there's nothing special about this but here's a big deal about elisha and his family although small town Elisha and his family were the only notable figures. He came from a very wealthy farming farming family. And when we look at this, it mentions Elisha himself was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Let's see how they do math here in Michigan. There's typically two in a yoke, and so 12 times two is? Wow, you folks are a little nervous here today, huh? There's no trick math. We have the same math in New York as here in Michigan. There's, there's 24 oxen. There's 12 yoke. He was on the 12th. So there's at least 11 other workers. And imagine the type of land that would come with 
the need for 12 teams of oxen. And this was just Elisha's portion of his dad's farming industry. And so the chances are this family was loaded. They'd quite the wealth amassed to them. And Elisha really was set up for the future. He had not only his present income, but he had a part of the farming industry from his dad. And you know what was going to happen when his dad passed away? He would get this whole massive farming industry all for himself in this little obscure town. However, something happened that changed his life, and he was commissioned to continue the mission of Elijah. And I'm not sure how this sets with you, but out of nowhere, he's working with his oxen, and Elijah comes by with his cloak, and he throws it up and over Elisha. Now, if someone came and did that to you, what would you be thinking? Out of the blue, someone comes up and does this, and obviously we are dealing with a cultural difference because for you or for me, we'd be thinking, what in the world are you doing? You know, I'm not a coat rack. But for Elisha, when this happened, he instantly knew who he was dealing with. He's dealing with the prophet Elijah. And he knew what this meant. This was not, are you cold? This was, I have a mission for you. And the same responsibility that's been on my shoulders is now going to be on your shoulders to carry on. There was a commissioning here, and Elisha knew exactly what this meant. And so now let's just put the framework around this. Elisha, from this town, having all of this wealth, having his future set up, and Elijah interrupts his life and throws his mantle around him and says, you are going to have a mission that you need to accomplish. And then you think, so what is Elisha going to do? And the same things that Elisha did, I'm going to put out to us today for us to think about doing. And there's two primary activities that Elisha went about. And here they are. The very first one, as he accepted this new role and responsibility, the very first thing Elisha asked big of himself he asked big of himself just look at the narrative for a moment verse 20 and 21 elisha then left his oxen ran after elijah let me kiss my father and mother goodbye and he said and then i will come to you go back elijah replied what have i done to you and, and that's not a negative thing he's saying hey i'm not holding you back elisha do what you need to do Verse 21, check this out. So Elisha left him, went back. He took his yoke of oxen, slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people. And they all ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became a servant. Here's the big deal. Elijah asked, or Elisha asked big of himself. So Elisha gets back home does something historic, he does something legendary, insanely sacrificial. He knew that the need in Israel was tremendous. He wanted to have a huge impact. He did not want to be ordinary or average, and he realized this was going to require something of himself. And so he put out big and asked big of himself. And I just want to give you, here's three quick things that he sacrificed as we looked at it. He sacrificed his resources, 
He had cattle, he had equipment in our vernacular, he had money, he had possessions, he had income, he had resources, he had investments, and all of these things he ended up putting out and sacrificing for this mission. Here's another thing he sacrificed. He sacrificed his comfort zone. He was with his family. He was in a small town. Farming was everything he knew. This was his life. It was his livelihood. Here's where his contacts, his neighbors, his relatives, his laborers, everything, every comfort in his life orbited around this specific area. And he sacrificed his comfort zone and he left to go off with Elijah. And here's the third thing. He sacrificed his plans. At this stage in his life, he had a plan. It was actually a pretty smart plan. He had all of his future laid out. And at the drop of a hat, actually the drop of a cloak around his shoulder, he gave it all up. His plan was gone. And it was now God's plan. And sacrifice is a lot different than what we think about today. The opposite of sacrifice is oftentimes what gets us in trouble, doesn't it? The opposite of sacrifice is selfishness. When we selfishly grasp what we want and we don't want to give it up. And I could give you examples of selfishness, but I found a video that actually is better than anything I could say. You guys got to see this example of selfishness. Watch this.
gets us in trouble, doesn't it? Instead of grasping at what Elisha could get, Elisha eagerly gave it up, and he moved forward to sacrifice for the mission of God. There's this little world in northern Israel that God put him over. And he realized if he was going to reach it, he had to stop reaching for other things. Now, we sang it a little bit earlier in a newer way. Uh, I'm going to give up my age here in just a moment. Uh, maybe you don't even know this song, but I learned it back in kids' school and church. If you know it, sing with me, would you? I have decided to follow I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And then uh, the world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me the cross before me the world behind me the cross before me the world behind me the cross before me two things Elisha did. When faced with this new mission of God, is the very first thing he did was he asked big of himself. And he showed it with his actions. And then the second thing he did was he asked big of God. He asked big of God. Elisha is going through this transition with Elijah and Elijah's finishing his final leg and in 2 Kings 2 we see this request and here uh, in verse 9 and 10 Elisha says this to Elijah when they had crossed Elijah said to Elisha tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken from you and here's Elisha's words, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elijah, you've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. And so first of all, Elisha asked big of himself. He asked himself to put out and to put it on the line to sacrifice for God's mission. But then here he turns around and he asks of God. Now, originally he thought, maybe I asked this of Elijah. And Elijah said, no, 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 no. That's not for me to give you. It's a bigger thing than that. But if you will get this double portion of my spirit, you'll know it when you see that I've been ushered up into the heavens and I am coming back no more. And so that's exactly what happened. Elijah is taken from him. Elisha sees this. And that is a confirmation that his request, I want big, God, would you use me in a huge, substantial way? 
would you give me even a double portion of what you did with Elijah? And help me to do that here in my little place of northern Israel. God did it. I want to show you how he did it. Twice as many miracles as Elijah, Elisha had done. Now, Elijah had done 14. He had performed 14 miracles during his ministry tenure. Now, see how your math still is in Michigan. 14 times 2 is? Getting a little bit better. 28 miracles. Interestingly enough, Elisha dies having only accomplished 27 miracles. One short. I got to show you this. This is so neat. So here, after 27 miracles, Elisha dies, and in chapter 13 of 2 Kings, here's what happens. The text mentions in verse 20 and 21, Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. And once while some Israelites were burying a man... Suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Now there's some Bible stories I wish I were there for. This is one of them. Wouldn't that have been awesome to see the looks on these guys' face? They, here comes the raiders, chuck the body in there, and they do, and all of a sudden, whoop, this guy comes to life and walks out and I don't know, I wish I knew more of the story at that point. Miracle number 28. God took Elisha's sacrifice and he took Elisha's request. And God did some awesome, awesome things with this little guy from an unknown town that's just a farmer kid and made big on him. God's got a history of doing that. Like the widow with, uh, they called them mites, just her pennies that she threw in the offering. God said, I can do more with that than with all the big stuff that some of these people put in for personal recognition. Or how about the little kid with the, the five loaves of bread and the two fish? God can take even small sacrifice and do big things with who he is. So why don't I bring this up as our first official Sunday conversation together. Uh, I bring it up for a big reason. Just last month, Barna, a Christian research group, completed a seven-year study on the spiritual climate of our nation. And in this survey, it went through three different classifications. There were cities and regions that were churched. There were cities and regions that were unchurched. And then there's cities and regions that are de-churched. And for the sake of our discussion this morning, we're going to talk about the de-churched. And it's interesting to note that the Traverse City Cadillac region was formerly known as a churched region the majority of people in this region went to church and identified with the local church and participated 
with a local church. And interestingly enough, after all of this time has expired, after this seven-year study goes by Barna, we now live in a region where we are in the top 20 of the most de-churched regions in America, folks. We're 40%, we're number 14, 40% of this population in the Traverse City and Michigan area are now de-churched. They used to go to church. And here we're in the same list as San Francisco, Reno, Las Vegas. I asked some people, why do you think this is the case? I wonder for you, why do you think this is the case? And here's, here's what some people said. You know what? We live in a vacation region. Here's what they said. It gets nice for three months. And you're like, ooh, it's too nice to go to church. And then after those three months, ooh, it's too cold to go to church. And they don't go. Ask someone else. They say, you know why it's, you know why it's un- de-churched? Unforgiveness and offenses. People have been offended. I'm not going back there. Here's another one. The people no longer see church or its functions as relevant or important. It's just going through the motions. No matter what the reasons, folks, no matter what excuses people bring out or even valid reasons that they bring out why they no longer go to church, I know two major parts of the solution. And before we figure it all out, before we talk about any adjustments in ministry at East Bay Calvary, before anything is even considered, we need to consider two major parts of the solution that Elisha found out on his own. We need to ask big of ourselves, folks. We need to ask big of ourselves, and then we need to ask big of God. So first, uh, here's an action item. I want to give you a couple things. Ask big of ourselves. Write these down. I'm going to finish up soon. In New York, we close at noon, so forgive me. I'm already going over. Boy, my first Sunday preaching, I'm going over. I'll make it up to you next week. Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) So here's some things to ask of ourselves. Our time. You know, if we want God to show up, maybe we should accompany him, you know? Be a part of it, whatever it is. But if God's there and he's doing something, his people should come right along with him and celebrate it and do it and jump in. And I know it's going to crimp our schedules. I know we'll have to adjust things. But we do need to ask big of ourselves. And so I say, be a part of it. Serve as part of it. And I'm not asking you to burn your boat and grill burgers on it. But if you do invite me, please, I would, that would be awesome. But I'm just asking, uh, 
we're going to have to go the extra mile. We're going to have to go above and beyond ordinary and ask big of ourselves. Here's another thing. Sacrifice our resources, our finances, our gifts, our abilities, our talents. We want God to do great things here. We need to be willing to attempt great things along with him. And quite possibly, God has given you that ability, resource, burden for more than yourself. And when something is in your hand and some ability is in your heart, chances are there's not merely there for you to enjoy it all on your own. It's for you to use in God's work for his kingdom. And here's the last one. Sacrifice our comfort zone. I think this is probably the toughest one. Because sometimes there's this emotion of fear attached with our comfort zone. And we struggle stretching out of it. And I'm just going to be open with you. I struggle with stretching out of my comfort zone. And one example of that, I remember being at um, an auction years ago. A farm auction. And, and, and I'd go there with my kiddos. And sometimes we'd buy a tractor. And sometimes we'd just buy hot dogs. And whatever it is, we would just go there and have fun. And I remember sitting there uh and uh, we were eating hot dogs and there's a there's a large area just for people to sit around and eat apart from the auction and as i'm sitting there next to one of my girls and we looked over and there was a man you could tell life had beat the tar out of him and probably a lot of the beatings were self-inflicted it just showed all over his face. And I remember my daughter tapping me. said, Dad, and you know kids aren't always very subtle in these. Dad, you see that guy? I'm like, oh my, here we go. Here's what she said. He needs Jesus. Then it got worse. Let's go tell him. And here's what I said. Just don't go up to people like that, honey. Here my comfort zone. And my faith was so much smaller than my kids. And it's one thing we're going to have to kill, folks. And stick on the Barbie. And cook that baby till it's gone. But we're going to have to sacrifice that. And here's the last thing I'm going to give you. Then we're going to finish up. Ask big of God. When we've asked big of ourselves and we've put out there, there is no way in the world that that by itself will ever do it. You know, if we just do more, church will be successful. That's baloney. That's baloney. All of our effort minus God's hand and blessing is failure. Total failure. 
And we need to be in a spot where we put out, but then we say, God, please, we beg of him. God, we want you to show up. Use our feeble efforts for awesome things and not for our recognition or our statistics, but God, for your recognition and your fame. And, and so we put out, and so in this asking big of God, this is just what it is. It's we pray. We pray. And, and I'll readily recognize when others say things better than me. And this morning, Tom Rayner says it. He's a church growth specialist. He says it perfectly in this book, uh, Who Moved My Pulpit? And here's what he says. I have never seen successful and sustaining change take place in a church without prayer. Point blank. I love it. He goes on. Prayer is not an option in leading change in the church. It's foundational. And then he speaks to pastors. You're not smart enough to lead change, he says. You need to pray for wisdom. You're not brave enough to lead change. You need to pray for courage. You're not strong enough to lead change. You need to pray for strength. And then he says, please pardon me for being redundant, but I will say it one more time. I have never seen successful and sustaining change take place in a church without prayer. And to that I say, yeah, you better believe it. So I want to put two things out to you. We have 50 days from now till Labor Day. 50 days. And I don't know how many people are here. 400. Can you imagine if all 400 of us, every day, for the next 50 days prayed for East Bay Calvary Church. And so here, here it is. You're going to forget just like I'm going to forget. And we need to remind ourselves. So put it, put it on your computer screensaver. Have it be the backdrop on your phone. Put it on your refrigerator if you're part of the no exercise diet. Put it on your bulletin board just put it where you're going to see it every day and we stop and we ask God for the next 50 days collectively God please we ask big of you do great stuff with us here at East Bay Calvary the 50 day challenge can you imagine it folks can you imagine what God can do if we all did this together and beg for his presence and his spirit in a huge way to be upon our ministry? We ask big of him. And then here's the last one I want to tell you, and I know this isn't for everyone because of the time frame, but there is actually a prayer time before church every Sunday in the conference room, and I may not even be pointing in the right direction, but I think it's over this way, at 8.30, at 8.30. And there's some of us, it's open to everybody. And, and if you want to be a part of it over this summer, I'd encourage you, jump in there, 8.30, and we're going to pray about this time and how it affects our community and church all week long, right over in the conference room. We ask big of ourselves, and we ask big of God. Would you stand with me for a moment? And 
Can we do that? I just want to give you a moment of silence where you look inside first. And before asking what will God do, before asking I wonder what others around me will do, would you ask of yourself what you will do? What you'll do. And how that affects you. And it's going to affect us all. But in the silence, would you talk to God? And if he's prompting you with something, that'll be better than anything I could ever put in your mind. And be willing to ask big of yourself and to sacrifice. Would you talk to him just for a moment in silence? Father, we don't want to fail by thinking our sacrifice is the key ingredient because, God, it's ultimately about you. And with every heart linked here today, God, we ask. We ask big. And with the right motivation, God, show up here, please, in a huge way. And if you're going to do something in this region, uh, God, do it here. Do it with us. Pick us. Choose us. We want to spread who you are to this de-churched region and be a part of that stat changing for the better. Use us. And we pray this, God, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. couple quotes I read this week. One, as we give, we find that sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. And in the end, we find it was no sacrifice at all. One other quote you don't have up there is, uh, ministry that costs nothing, accomplishes nothing. Think about it. Hey, good to see you at East Bay. Blessings. If you're a guest, make sure you hit that connect us back here. Have a great week. Bless you.